Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That is some music of Mendelssohn. That is from his octet, Opus 20, performed by House Music. We're going to talk about classical music and related topics today. On her Twitter account, which by the way is at Linda Hyphen, Linda Schaefer Gleason describes herself as a musicologist, mother, cancer patient, recently adopted by a cat. She writes a blog, Not Another Music History Cliche, Debunking Music History Myths. Offering commentary on many aspects of classical music culture, from uh, snobbery to composer hero worship to the question, is music a universal language? Linda Shaver Gleason specializes in reception, the way audiences assign meaning to the music they hear. She writes program notes for several classical music organizations and artists, and she was at Utah State University recently for several events, including a lecture titled The Morality of Musical Men from Victorian Propriety to the Era of Hashtag Me Too. Linda Shaver Gleason joins us here on Access Utah for the hour as a part of USU's Year of the Arts. By the way, your top photo on your Twitter yeah. count yeah. is Jeopardy. Yes. Um, were were I you was on a, Jeopardy? Yes, I was. And okay. um, that's a fun story in and of itself. Um, I did the audition in the middle of uh, brain radiation treatments. Um, so I was actually at the hospital in the morning and then auditioning for Jeopardy that afternoon um, and then got called the next day that I'd be, been selected to be a contestant. Um, so I finished, I competed on the show a month after that. So it was after the, uh, the radiation had been completed uh, and did pretty well. Because one of the things I was afraid of was that the radiation was going to affect my recall. You know, they're telling you, you know, it, you're not going to have that much different brain function. It's just you might be slower to think of things and you might have a slower reaction time. And that's exactly the things I need, the skills I need on Jeopardy. Um, but I did fairly well and um, I was in it for the whole game and it came down to the very last question. I lost, but again, it was till, until... The final revelation of the final answer, it, it was still, I was still in the, in the contest. That, that final part where you write down a, yeah, an yeah. answer. Okay. Yeah. So you were, you were in it. And I, and I that. bet okay. enough to, uh, that I was in the lead when they revealed the, the, you know, the champion's answer. Yeah. Yeah. And she that, got it right. Darn it. That's part of it. Knowing how much to bet, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I actually spent more time preparing the math on that than I was on trivia because it's like mm -hmm. trivia, you need to build on previous knowledge. Yeah. Um, Whereas the math, it's like, I don't want to be freezing, freezing on the math questions. Like I, I need to know exactly what game theory thing I need to put in place right. depending on my score. And so, yeah, that's at least half of it. The game theory right. part of it. Yeah. Um, so were, were there any questions in your wheelhouse? Um, I mean, uh, there are things that I should have known and, and didn't, and I was okay. embarrassed. Uh, my dissertation had been on Mendelssohn in the Victorian era, and there was a question on which, you know, which house of monarchs did Victoria belong to? And I'm like, I should know this. And I was hoping that somebody else would ring in so that I could be like, oh, you know, they're just quicker on the buzzer. Nobody rang in. So it's like all my colleagues would know that I didn't know. I didn't have Hanover at the tip of my tongue, which is mm. something I absolutely should have known. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little embarrassing. Um, unfortunately, there were no music categories. Okay. I was waiting. Yeah. I was waiting for the composer category for me to just clear it up and just put myself way in the lead. And instead, it was like anagrams of military equipment. Okay, <laughs> just yeah. just your just your luck, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, so let me uh, let me tell folks uh, that um, Linda Shaver uh, Gleason writes a very interesting uh, blog. Not another music history cliche. We'll get into talking about that. Love your uh, Twitter handle at Linda Hyphen. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, I guess that's in reference to your hyphenated My last name, last name. yes. <laughs> very, very good. Um, so you started out as a violist. Yes, You say right. in, your, in your bio, by the way, the, the uh, website is shavergleason.com. In your bio, you without the hyphen, I'm, I'm sorry. Without the hyphen, without that's the right. Hyphen, without the hyphen, I have hyphen. to say um, that you 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 knew from very early you were going to be a, a musician or at least involved yes. in music. Yes, um, I grew up in a household that had classical music playing all the time. Um, I'm from the Chicago area originally, and when I was growing up, there were two classical stations, and unfortunately, we're down to just one. Um, and but it's very high quality WFMT. So I was really exposed to a lot of music and to a lot of the um, the DJ banter about telling the history behind these pieces, and um, to a show in particular called Shickley Mix, where Peter Shickley, who uh, developed the character of P.D.Q. Bach. Um, he was basically the first musicologist or somebody practicing kind of musicology that I became aware of, that he could be kind of this eclectic person and have something interesting to say about the pieces that he pulled together on the program. So I think that was an early influence. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of, in my family, it wasn't so much, do you want to play an instrument? It's which instrument do you want to play? And um I started off in, with piano at age four, which is the age that my older sister had started. And then there came the time in the, the school district, you know, you can join band or orchestra. And I chose viola cause, because it's kind of the unusual instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I kind of liked being special and having a cleft to myself was mm -hmm. very appealing. Um, so, yes, that, that was the beginning of the viola. And as I uh, progressed through school, I realized that I was, you know, doing pretty well at that and joined a youth orchestra and realized that I just fell in love with orchestral playing and kind of the, the mindset and the discipline that comes with playing in a section. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you were successful at, at, at Viola performing, um, um, ended up in, in Santa Barbara, California, yes. eventually got to advanced degrees. Um, at what point did you decide, I want to, I want to do public musicology. I want to do teaching. Maybe that's a better fit. Yeah. Um, well, uh, at UCSB, we had a wonderful viola professor, Helen Callis, um, and I was actually already leaning toward musicology toward the end of my undergrad years, um, and performance anxiety was, was really difficult for me. Um, but when she asked me to join her studio, I'm like, well, if she sees something in me, maybe there's something there. Maybe I shouldn't give up. Um, so I went out there, and she is a fantastic teacher and took care of a lot of the technical issues, the technique issues that were holding me back. But even though she's pretty much got me to like the highest point that I'd ever been, it still wasn't enough to override that, that um, performance anxiety. And Meanwhile, UCSB has a really nice um, department in that they allow performers to take the musicology and music theory classes, even the advanced ones. And so I was doing really well in those classes. Um, and so I became kind of like the dependable student in all these fields. Um, what really clinched it for me was, I, again, once again, I started thinking maybe musicology or music theory is my thing. Maybe I shouldn't be performing because I'm just I'm not as good as the other people in, my, in the studio, uh, that kind of thing. It, it came down to when I was preparing my final recital for the degree, and I had to take no academic classes, that my entire schedule was filled with um, ensemble playing, lesson scheduling, recital prep, and um, having time with my accompanist. That was all what my schedule was, and it turned out I was kind of miserable because I missed the classes, the discussions, um, the research, the papers. And so that really sealed it for me that, you know, in order to have the career I thought I wanted in orchestra, 
I would have had to have developed the solo skills that I knew I was not capable of, of doing. It's like, like my teacher took me as high as I could go and I knew I couldn't go higher. And like, but I'm doing really well with musicology. So mm. we went uh, and, in there. And uh, I guess what we're calling public musicology, yes. you write program notes. You help yeah. people to, uh, to, you know, I guess to understand the music, prepare right. them to receive the music. Um, organizations like the Santa Barbara Chamber Orchestra, yeah. I guess Los Angeles, Los Angeles Philharmonic. Uh, um, yeah, I haven't updated my my website recently, but I think I need to do that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I have uh, LA Phil. I've done a couple programs for them, um, and I got tapped to do a BBC program, which was another nice little feather in my cap. Yeah. Um, that started kind of as a crossover from my performance. Um, my performance aspect in that my previous teacher, Holly Callas, uh, would have recitals and she asked me to write the music because she knew I was interested in history and that I had a solid reputation as a good writer. Um, and I had a very, very, very good stroke, stroke of luck in that the um, president of the board of the Santa Barbara Chamber Orchestra was in the audience, looked at my program notes and said, that's what I want. Mm. Um, so then I got hired by an orchestra and I got to do complete seasons and that really put me through my paces is to, you know, write six programs back to back. Each one has at least three pieces on there. Um, and I was their program notes writer until the organization folded just this last year, um, which is very sad. Uh, but that was nine years of, of entire seasons worth of programs that I was writing. Mm. Um, and from there, from there it spread to other you know, other organizations, a couple, there's one in Oregon, one in Minnesota, um, and then having the blog, the blog also helped me get the LA Phil job. Um, so there's, there's an art to it, right? You got to know yeah. your audience, you right. got to know the music, you got to know how to mm-hmm. communicate that, preparing. Uh, I understand you uh, specialize in reception. The, yes. The way audiences assign meaning um, to the music they hear, and of course this informs your work as a program annotator. Tell right. me a little bit about this reception, the way audiences assign meaning to the music they hear. Yes. Um, yeah, I think early on in musicology, there was a lot of focus on the production of music. Like, who was writing this music? And even, like, can we find this music? It was very much based on kind of the moment of the creation. And then kind of also, what were the composers doing? What was going on in their lives? Why did this piece come about? Um and I'm more interested in kind of getting the composer out of the picture, sometimes not necessarily, but why are these pieces still being played today? They have this, what's called the afterlife of these composers and these pieces. And in order for them to get performed, they must resonate in some way with the people of that particular time. And often it says more about the time of the performance than it does of the time of the composer. Um, and I just find that fascinating. Uh, I got into that specifically with Mendelssohn in Victorian England, um, that after his death in Germany, um, he was already being, um, being had some suspicion cast on him because of his Jewish heritage. He was already being kind of erased from their history books. Uh, whereas in England, at the same, very same time, they're still praising him as kind of their emissary of music and somebody who had like promoted um, English composers and had encouraged them to learn the art. So I was very much drawn to how could two countries simultaneously have such contradictory images of the same composer when he's not, there's no difference in the music they're hearing, Mm. but there's so much difference in what they're assigning to that music, what Mm. they associate that music with. Um, 
And then from there, um, again, my experience with program notes meant that I couldn't just, you know, close myself off to everything non-Mendelssohn. I had to have kind of a broader understanding of anything that could show up on a concert program. And I think that that versatility helps with my blog so that, you know, I'm able to speak about you know, I, I know a little about a lot and a lot about a little. Mm-hmm. Which, which uh, you know, that's good for yeah. my job, too. So we, that's, right, we, have, right. <laughs> we have that in common. I know less about music, of course. Um, I want to talk about, and you, you have a series of uh, posts on, on the blog, not another music history cliche.blogspot.com. Yes, thank you. Um, about classical music and, you know, classical right. music organizations, symphonies, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, are worrying, or, you know, or yeah. how do we get young people? And how do and we do. Uh, build an audience? One of the, when you write about this, one of the ways that some organizations are trying to do this in their communication is to make c- composers cool. Yeah. So, yeah. so you write, um, Will knowing that Hector Berlioz was a drug addict yeah. make you listen to Symphony Fantastique? Right, exactly. Where do you come down on this? Okay, um, part of it is I'm concerned when I see these campaigns, um, and really they kind of began in the 1960s when you had the kind of counterculture, and people thought, well, maybe we can get that segment of the young people. And uh, um, in my in my talk I, uh, last Friday, I mentioned how these men of music were seen as very moral and upstanding. So in the 1960s, you saw a backlash to that. So like, this is not your grandfather's uh, classical music, that kind of thing. It's like less about the morals of Bach and more about the um, the many women that List wooed and how, you know, List is a rock star. And we saw a lot of that in the 80s, then when Amadeus, the movie came out, and how Mozart is the rock star and so many things like that. Um, and then you have the music video for Rock the Amadeus where they get into the wigs, but it's very much a 1980s production with the neon lights and everything like that. Um, so, yeah, there was a backlash to the high class, um, high morals image and the backlash has been, these are the bad boys. Yeah, they're not spotless. They're, they're doing some dirty deeds. Yeah, just to kind of make it look cool. Um, and I think both sides of those kind of go to the extremes and they misrepresent classical music in a certain way. And I don't think that we're going to, I mean, people may become interested in it because of these hooks, but in order for them to stay interested, we shouldn't be misrepresenting what this music is. Um, and another thing I like to point out again and again in my blog is that, you know, history is a different country. They do things differently there. Um, it's the it's a cliche in and of itself, but it's really true that a lot of times we're locked into how we perceive a culture because this is all we know. This is all we've lived. Um, and history is a way for us to understand it hasn't always been that way. And so I think when they present classical music as cool, they're dependent on our definitions and our society and kind of a moving target of what our society finds as cool. Um, And I don't think that's really the right way to go about it. And I think part of the impetus is they wanted to combat the idea that that classical is boring. But the opposite of boring isn't cool. The opposite of boring is interesting. And it's completely possible to be interesting without having to be cool. Um, So that's basically what I say in that essay is that 
we shouldn't be aiming for that cool factor that's, again, a moving target and changes, you know, with, with fashion and so on. We should be trying to kind of present it on its own terms, which I think is interesting enough on its own and learning, you know, expanding those horizons and realizing that things were different back then. So inter- not cool, but interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, are our organizations having success? And, and if right. so, if so, how? Because it's more demanding, right? right. Which, which right. can be an attraction in and of itself, but it can also be a hindrance to some hindrance, yeah. people. Well, I think, I mean, I'm starting to see some changes. I haven't really kept my eye on the orchestras like I have in the past like year and a half. So I don't have quite the long-term perspective. Um, one of the things I think that is helping is more representation of uh, women composers and women conductors and also outreach to children. Because I, I tend to find that the people who attend live performances, at least, are the ones who had played an instrument at some point. And it, it doesn't even have to be lessons, but if the local orchestra goes to a school and they saw a demonstration and something where they actually got to touch a violin or touch a trumpet, that that's something that they wanted to see even and, and could seek out as an adult. Um, but again, even that is kind of prohibitive in did your school district have that opportunity to to have that, give that to the children. Um, so, but it's, it's good to like be able to see yourself on that stage. Um, one of the things I did when I was a teaching assistant for a music appreciation course is that, uh, during the summer course, we had the Music Academy of the West very near, very close to Santa Barbara, and we would have their concerts. So these students who are not music majors and really probably had never thought of classical music before enrolling this class that will give them credit that they need, um, them going to this concert and seeing people who are, you know, 18 to 22, who are just about their age and represent a multitude of, um, of ethnic backgrounds, to be able to see them producing this music is really eye-opening for them. It's like even though the audiences tended to still be, um, you know, what they would associate with, with classical music is like, I saw a lot of gray hair and a lot of old people. Unfortunately, some of them were with very welcoming people who were glad to see young people in the audience. And then some of them were also snooty, which is something I try to counteract on my blog. Mm-hmm. But to see on stage the people playing looked more like them. It was very powerful for them to see that. That is powerful to see yourself. At least, right, to right. To be able to picture yourself in that world if it's new to you. On your uh, on your blog post, Not Another Music History Cliché, you quote Toronto music critic Michael Vincent. He has nine things that we should change about classical music, and he's talking more about the ritual. Right, right. And, and I'm, you know, I've, I, as, as a child, my dad, uh, big classical and opera fan, took the kids, you know, a right, lot. Right, right. I've attended many concerts. Um, so things like we don't clap between right. movements. Right. He's saying clap away. Right. Um, yeah, that was a pretty controversial article when it came out. And I remember it just spread across social media. And I came down, I, I mean, he has an itemized list and I react to each one of them. And then um, I offer some more solutions of my own. It's been a while since I've reviewed that specific one. But yeah, a lot of it did come down to the, the ceremony of it. And I realized that for some people, the ceremony is a part of it. It's like they want an experience that is out of the ordinary, that removes them from their everyday life, where they get dressed up, where they can go to a place and then have that nice silence and then music and then be able to have their own reaction to it. And then somehow also, though, that their reaction, realizing that there's an entire room full of people that are having 
a similar reaction to the same sounds. Um, but this, again, is very 19th century in its practice. Um, and really, it was Wagner who started this whole absolute silence before no clapping between because he wanted to make sure that, that each work was seen as a complete unit. So... Um, before before that time, it was completely permissible to clap between movements, um, to even have movements repeated. Um, very often we'll read in periodicals of the time that, you know, the finale was so spirited that they repeated it, or there was an encore of the delicious second movement of this concerto, that kind of thing. So they were a lot looser with what could happen in a concert. Um, so... I think, I mean, I'm kind of just going right down the middle and trying to please everybody, <laughs> but... I think that we also could benefit from having certain concerts where these are these rules are relaxed because as much as some people really get an enjoyment out of it, it's also very intimidating and um, it becomes inaccessible to some and people are afraid that, you know, what if I clap at the wrong time? I'm going to get dirty looks. And unfortunately, they're right. They do get dirty looks from people in the audience. As I mentioned with my students, there were, again, there were, they would sit by um, older people who were welcoming and so glad to see them. But they, I also had students who were experiencing the kind of glares because, you know, they aren't appreciating it in the right way kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like, what are they doing here? There's no way they're knowledgeable about this music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, it, it, not that I'm an arts organizer, but it'd be nice to be able to offer a variety. Like maybe we have earlier concerts that are a little shorter, that only feature two works that have kind of the relaxed atmosphere as well as the larger ones with, you know, the full program that have the the pomp and circumstance. Well, not the actual pomp and circumstance necessarily, but the, the full experience that kind of takes you back in time to the 19th century mm-hmm. where we, we had these values. Yeah. yeah. Interesting to remember where these things come from. You know, Wagner at Bayreuth. You, you mentioned yeah. he he was basically setting up a church or a temple right. to his to his music, and so right. we need to be we need to be quiet. Uh, some of the things that Vincent uh, mentions is we don't necessarily need the tuning on stage. We that don't... I disagree. As a musician, I had to disagree. Oh, oh with you really? That. Okay. Um, because our some of the instruments are particularly finicky. Um, strings. It's like if there's a temperature difference between backstage and on stage, okay. we have to retune. So that one, I'm like, I I I was very much against that one we need to have to be we need to have to tune in the environment we're performing right in. yeah uh i liked uh, the, so standing ovation uh and i'm i'm, I'm guessing this is uh done outside of utah i've i've kind mm-hmm. of thought this is a utah thing the you know the the most mediocre performance gets a standing ovation like, just it's because polite. it's very polite <laughs> because and then if the people in the row in front of you give a standing ovation and you want to see what's going on after the yeah. concert you have to stand and you yourself. get the wave the classical music yeah. version of the wave right right um, yeah i think his complaint was that if we do the standing ovation all the time it doesn't become anything special mm-hmm. and i i understand that um but i don't i also don't feel like we should be policing people's um policing people's response to music. So maybe maybe standing ovations have just become folded into what's expected, but I don't know that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. And maybe we'll come up with another creative way to show appreciation above and beyond the standing ovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know quite what that'll be, but right. it's not up to me. Yeah, that's right. Maybe rushing the stage. By the way, mm-hmm. in, in his post, uh, he's got a, a photo 
of um, a middle-aged guy in a suit crowd surfing. You know, oh, so yeah, yeah. I guess he's yeah, suggesting yeah, that's trying to get maybe, back to the cool things. Yeah, 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 back to the cool things. And I will admit, uh, just before we leave this topic, to a little bit of snobbery or reverse snobbery with yeah. opera. Yeah. I'm a big opera buff, and, and you know, when I go to the opera, I, I, I love the opera. I love to sit on the front yeah. row, feel the spit coming off the stage. Right. Um, I don't need the super titles usually, but I'm glad they're there. Yes. But I get a little bit annoyed sometimes when I see a person um, coming into the box dressed to the nines, right. and right. I, I, I've not seen them at any other opera or ever before, and, I, and so I make a judgment about that right. person that they're just there to be seen. Uh, and so which, I have a temptation to come in jeans and a t-shirt just to, as a reverse <laughs> thing, you know. Well, again, is, it's probably going in the wrong direction. Coming to be seen at the opera is actually kind of its historical function. Mm. Um, I mean, this is going back to 17th century and 18th century that there was, I mean, people would be holding conversations. They'd be playing cards. Um, they'd be they'd ha- be serving refreshments during the opera. And, you know, people would be coming to the same opera multiple times because that was the social event. So yeah, if they are dressing up to the nines and coming to be seen, that's actually, they're actually participating in a historic okay. uh, thing. <laughs> as far as you know, kind of getting back and being like, okay, now I'm going to wear some jeans instead. Mm. Again, I think that that opera has a little bit more of a, a protectiveness toward it um, because opera itself is a bit more immersive in that. You know, it's preventing, it's presenting a world. There's visual aspects. It's a story that you're following. So it's it's very much even more of an escape in some ways because you get to kind of just surround yourself in this world and get involved. Um, so I see a lot of um, these attitudes coming up as a defensiveness, as mm-hmm. you say, like this is my thing. Why are they doing that here? Mm-hmm. And and I think we need to recognize that it is defensiveness and then kind of examine like what am I actually afraid of here like wouldn't it be better for them to have more listeners why do I feel threatened Mm -hmm. by this person enjoying the music that I'm enjoying yeah why do I feel like they're not doing it the right way right I should welcome them in and and hope that it sticks hope that they come back exactly and that's like like you kind of have to talk yourself into that and like analyze why am I feeling that way why do I feel and a lot for a lot of it is yes, there is a there is a classical music culture, but it isn't mainstream anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I growing up, I, that was part of my identity. Is I know classical music, and none of my classmates do. Um, but as I as I get older, I realize that you know I shouldn't have really cut myself off from popular music, um, and I shouldn't have been so proud of like oh, I've never heard of Britney Spears, you know, <laughs> and everybody else in my middle school is into her. Um, that it, you know, ignorance is never anything to be proud of, and so remaining ignorant about other styles of music is not something that you should be happy about. Mm-hmm. And you hear so many people of like, oh, I only listen to um, you know anything after Mahler is not worthwhile. That was actually um, brought into a, an episode of a sitcom, Brooklyn Nine Nine, where he's like, everything after Mahler is trash, kind of thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, just be open to that and then maybe we can shed this closed off exclusive image and people will kind of start incorporating classical music into their tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that people find out about music t- these days is is something that hasn't been around long enough to really be thoroughly investigated by you know academics or scientists or something like that. And that is that people my age and younger are coming across it on the internet. And it, for one part of it, it's wonderful at that any 
piece of the canon that, you know, the really no, well-known pieces, you can go to YouTube and find five different recordings of it. And like, there'll be a varying quality, but at the same time, the, like, what a great thing is like, I've never heard of, of Henry Purcell. Okay, here's like, here's a whole bunch of Henry Purcell you can listen to. Or I, you know, I, I heard something about, you know, Domenico Scarlatti. What does he sound like? Um, it's at their fingertips. Um, it's just a matter of getting them to want to find that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. This is a part of uh, our uh, contributions to USU's Year of the Arts. Linda Shaver Gleason, my guest for the hour, was recently on the USU campus for several events as a part of the USU Year of the Arts, including a lecture titled The Morality of Musical Men from Victorian Propriety to the Era of Hashtag Me Too. More with Linda Shaver Gleason following this break. We're talking classical music today, and uh, so our music is a bit different. That's from Edvard Grieg's uh, Lyric Pieces. It's the Arietta Opus 12, number one, performed by pianist Emil Gilels. We're talking with musicologist uh, Linda Shaver Gleason. She specializes in reception, the way audiences assign meaning to the music they hear. She writes program notes for several classical music organizations and artists. And uh, she writes a blog, Not Another Music History Cliché. Uh, she's on Twitter, at Linda Hyphen, and on Facebook under Program Notes. Linda Shaver Gleason was on the USU campus recently for several events as a part of the USU Year of the Arts, including a lecture titled The Morality of Musical Men from Victorian Propriety to the Era of Hashtag Me Too. Here is the conclusion of my conversation with uh, Linda Shaver Gleason. So you have taught music appreciation to um, undergrads who aren't music majors. Yes. So tell me a bit about the the reaction and how you you teach. You can't get too insider with it. You know, you have to properly. um, How do do young people react to that? Um, Well, first of all, that that class... um, you know, we have so many debates about what we mean by music appreciation because a lot of these classes were put into the curriculum in um, like the 1950s or so. And it was really, uh, some of it was, was under sway from this kind of very Germanic approach because we had a lot of the music professors were exiles from Germany from World War II. So um, that had a major influence on the American concept of what music is great and why we should know about this particular music. And we still haven't really even shed that 60 years later, 60, 70 years later. Um, But you get in these kinds of classes a really wide range of students. And in at UC Santa Barbara, where I taught, this was one of the courses that could get you a writing requirement. And it was 450 students. So within 450 students, you're going to get a lot of students who are there just to get the requirement and aren't interested. And you're going to get a lot of students who are very knowledgeable coming in here because they love it, even if it's not even their major. And a lot of students in the middle. Um, And you kind of just try to speak to all of it in a way, but it's like you pitch it toward the middle because for the vast majority of these students are people who are like, yeah, I've heard that. I didn't know who wrote it. I didn't care who wrote it, but now I know. Okay, that, that that's fine. Um, but I really, the thing is, there, so much of it has been based historically on the drop the needle exam, which is, you know, can you recognize this famous piece of music? Can you tell us that this is the spring from Vivaldi's Four Seasons, you know, the first movement? Can you identify this? And if you know these 10 pieces, then you are 
educated in music. You have you have appreciated music. And that's really, we're finding out more and more and we're realizing that's not how it works. So we're trying to find ways to make music appreciation relevant to just the way they look at the world. Um, so part of that for me is reception history. Um, just realizing that it doesn't have to be just music, but pretty much anything with a history has the, the way we look at things has changed over time. Um, I mean, reception didn't even begin in music. It began more in literature. It's like, how do people interpret these, these words differently? And now it's, you know, how do people interpret these sounds differently? Um, but just for them to realize, again, that, that history is a different country, there, that, that there are different reasons for the music over time. Um, like one of the earliest things that we have to, that I try to, Get uh, one of the earliest habits I try to break of stu students of is um, saying they say that music they're like oh music is for expression music is the language of expression music is is an art form therefore it expresses our emotions and then you know the class usually starts with like Gregorian chant where it's not about personal expression whatsoever it's it's it has a reason it's part of their calendar it's part of how they um, how they pray. But it also has seen it's very closely tied to the hours of the day and what the um, what the people are, the priests and, and so on, what they're actually doing at that time. I'm saying this is not about personal expression at all, but this is very much about the community. Um, but just letting them know, no, music isn't you can't put one definition that music is emotion. It's like it is for you. That's part of it. But there's all these other traditions where it doesn't have to necessarily be emotional and it doesn't necessarily have to be personal expression. It can have community function. And um, I think sometimes that kind of cracks through is like, oh, it's not just one thing. I want to uh, go to another couple of topics that you, that you treat on your on your blog. One of those you just um, sort of skirted near. Um, yeah. And that is you pose this question, is music the universal language? Yes. That what's was what's my, your answer? Yeah, that was my um, most recent um, one. It's actually the second most popular in all time on that blog. And I come down with a very firm answer, which I knew was going to be very controversial. But I say, no, music is not the universal language. Um, and I break it down. Um, is music a language? And it's not. It's actually, in some ways, it's, it, its function is kind of the opposite of language and that language for the most part is about specificity trying to make sure that another person and you come together on what the meaning of this word is so that you can actually talk and understand each other um, and once you start playing with the ambiguity in words then you're starting to deal in the realms of art you're dealing with poetry and literature um, but language itself is trying to fix meaning that way so that more people can understand it whereas music the ambiguity is basically what makes it great is is um, different people are coming at it and the composer can play with expectations. And again, my my whole um, area with reception is after the composers out of the picture, things have t these these pieces of music have taken on additional meanings that the composer never would have even been aware of, um, like um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The the ode to joy from that is the the. Um, anthem of the European Union, something that Beethoven probably would have liked, um, knowing his his political beliefs, but he had no real concept that this could ever really happen in his time. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that that's, is interesting. Anyway. I can see the impulse. I can see why we'd want to say it's the universal language because right. we want music to draw us together. Right. And in a way, it can. We yeah. anthem ninth century anthem of the uh, it's it's kind right. of the European Union has come to take that meaning. But your point is, uh, each right. person can come and have their own interpretation. Right. And then, um, and then the second part I talked about is it the universal? If it's a language, is it the universal language? Um, and that I came firmly down to. Um, it's very, very based in your culture. And even though we live in Western culture, and Western culture is very is dominant right now, um, that there's no. We we are very much attuned to tonal music. We are very much attuned to hearing major and minor and jazz scales and like like we have this lexicon to draw on and people who don't have that same lexicon actually don't necessarily interpret it the same way so that was why I came down on no it's not um, a universal language but as I've, I mentioned this in the comments, in the discussion, uh, some of it is on the blog and some of it happens occurs on um, Facebook and Twitter, that if I had broken it down and just asked, is music universal, I would have a much harder time saying no. Um, because we've found that, you know, basically there isn't a culture on earth that doesn't have music for some reason. Again, it's not always for the expression. Sometimes it's very, um, very purposeful. Sometimes it, you know, it, it, in order to make this particular prayer, in order to make sure that our crops are growing, that's what this piece is for. And again, sometimes it's more community-based than individual. And so often we get locked into thinking that the way we perceive things in Western culture, even the multitude of that, is the way it is. It's like it's not always just personal expression. So, yeah, if I was asked if it was universal, I'd be a little weaker in my mm, stance. But okay. as far as is it a universal language, I'm like, no. Okay. And I did get pushback on yeah, you that. You did. You did. Okay. <laughs> All right. I want to treat uh, the, the, a couple more titles and a couple more blog uh, posts. Very interesting. Yeah. You encourage people to go to... Uh, uh, not another music cliche dot blogspot dot com. Music history cliche. Music not history. another music history cliche dot So you talk about and this is several posts on women composers, yes. minority composers, and uh, the, you mentioned that there's a pushback sometimes mm-hmm. when we say we want to promote or we want to include women composers and minority composers, and the question is, don't we want quality? Full stop. Yes. Yes. Um, I've seen a lot of this. This is one of those topics that I didn't even realize that I would be covering so intensely uh, when I started this blog. When I started it, I thought I would be basically the Snopes of classical music, that people you know, could read something in a program note and say, I don't know if that, that doesn't sound right, and then go have a reliable place where they could just type it in, look it up, and my website, my, my blog would pop up and say, you know, no, Bach didn't hate the piano, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so getting into kind of the larger societal issues was unexpected but necessary. Uh, the, the conversation surrounding women composers, it was already there. And then the whole hashtag me too um, phenomenon really took off. And it, we're, it's all tied together. It's all entering into this conversation. Um, but yeah, the, the, the one of the things that really struck me was... Um, uh, there's a, a radio host in uh, Southern California named Brian Lawrenson, um, the host of the, the classical music. So he started tallying when when orchestras started announcing the pieces that they were playing for the whole season. He started making a tally of how many composers were women, 
um, versus men. And I think later on, either he or some other people who were inspired by that started tallying um, dead versus living um, and white versus people of color. And it is lopsided. Um, there are some in, some organizations, some institutions that are making a concerted effort. And you can see that, well, they programmed three women this year and still it's overwhelmingly it's it's male and, you know, white and dead. Um, and they've also been keeping a look track of guest conductors. How many with female guest conductors do we have? Um, so, yeah, he's he just been te- keeping this tally and just. At the very beginning, he wasn't even making quality statements. Just here are the numbers. And people were fighting him hmm. um, and saying, why do we have to meet quotas? Um, and what's the big deal? You know, why why are you programming this woman in a spot that should have gone to Beethoven and that kind of thing? And I think that's the problem is that they're seeing this as a zero-sum game, that there are only a certain number of slots. So if you put it on a, for to a woman, you are denying a man a slot, which, first of all, I think that that's a, the very narrow way of looking at programming because I mean, it's not ever going to be just that one concert. It's not ever going to be just that one season. I mean, we've had many, many, many seasons of Beethoven. Can't we have, you know, just one from this person who's lesser known? Um, So, but there's also this idea, and it, it irks me in classical music, is, you know, people who like classical music tend to pride themselves on all this knowledge that they've amassed. So when you start bringing in composers that they've never heard of, some of them become very defensive. And it's a matter of, well, if I didn't already know it, it's not worth knowing. And I think that's a terrible attitude to carry forth in your in your life. But you see them get very, very defensive. It's like, I know nothing about this person. How dare you say that they have great music? And people are like, well, if they were so good, how come I've never heard of them? And it's like, well, because of institutional prejudices that have caused, you know, us not to, you know, for women not to have as many things published as men and so on. So, um, yeah, I, I, I come up against that kind of discomfort and the defensiveness of, you know, why are you taking, again, the sense that why are you taking Mahler off the program and why are you putting in somebody else? And that's not really what we're doing. The, the related question, maybe the next question, uh, very much intertwined here from the, uh, the, the uh, another post of yours. You can't change the canon, or can oh, you? Or can you, yes. Um, yeah, I, I had quoted like a, a performer who said that, but I'm pretty sure that they were saying that, you know, tongue-in-cheek. Um, so what we're talking about with the, the musical canon, and, and we are use, borrowing a term from religious uh, parlance in that they, you know, they talk about the canon of saints, that they have to go through a certain you know, beatification process in order to be the acknowledged saint in the Catholic Church, that kind of thing, or other churches as well. Um, but we have that with music, that you know, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, the three Bs, um, absolutely they're in Chopin, Liszt. Um, if you're getting into the 20th century, we've admitted Stravinsky and Shostakovich and so on, that there are these big names that were like, okay, these are the composers. And you see it, I mean, it, literally etched in stone at some concert halls that these are the names of the people that we represent. Um, and so it's very, it's a very exclusive canon. It's very dominated by dead people. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. And, and that's one of the, again, one of my goals as a historian and as a public musicologist is to help people realize that 
it wasn't always this way. It isn't set in stone. Um, this really came about in the 19th century. Um, up to that point, people really had a preference for for new music. Um, they were aware of older music sometimes um, because they studied it. Uh, Bach never really faded because they were still studying the counterpoint of Bach, but they weren't performing it. Nobody really cared about hearing it in performance. They wanted to know what's new, what's going on in the development of the art, in the science of, of, of music, you know, what, have, what has been discovered. Um, so it isn't until basically the Romantic era, which had um, a, a bit of antiquarianism, a lot of looking back and reminiscing, that we, they started unearthing or keeping Haydn and Mozart very visible. And especially in England, keeping Handel visible or audible, I guess, because they're still programming him. Um, and Mendelssohn was very, very influential in actually putting on live performances and very famously put on performances of box music, which, again, up to this point, were seen as kind of academic exercises and saying, no, this can actually be a performance. Um, so in the 19th century, that's when they really were saying, OK, this was the golden era of, of classical music. It really crystallizes with Haydn and Mozart and, and Beethoven. This is, this is it. And we've carried that attitude through the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, but the thing is, it's not really that rigid. It didn't operate that way before, and it doesn't necessarily have to continue operating that way. Um, the, you know, people get inducted into the canon, but I think a lot of what people are hoping for is for there not to necessarily even be a canon, that there isn't this bar of entry, um, that we can actually, you know, go to a concert and have old music and new music and not be thinking, oh, I have to sit through this, oh, this piece before I get to the symphony I came for, you know? So yeah, that, mm. that's ultimately my goal is that the canon is so open as to not really even exist at all anymore. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, um, I wonder what you listen to. I guess you go to live performance. Tell me about right. that. Tell me what you, what you listen to at, at home. Let me, let me, um, frame it this way. Uh, I love your description of yourself on Twitter, yeah. which by the way, a great handle, Linda hyphen at Linda hyphen. Yeah, you describe yourself as musicologist, mother, cancer patient, recently adopted a cat. Or by a cat. A little bit adopted by a cat. <laughs> uh, writes not into their music history cliche. Um, did, I think our tastes change over time, yeah. right? Yeah. Motherhood, going right, through cancer, right. uh, marriage, uh, what you know, yeah. adopted by a cat. All of that <laughs> yes. might change what you listen to. What do you... Well, again, I grew up in the uh, classical music radio um, on all the time, and I still find myself drawn to that. I, I pipe it through my computer in my in my home. I don't have like a physical radio anymore, but I still listen to it um, through there. And what I like about that is because I'm not the one selecting the music, so I'm I can be actually exposed to new experiences. Yet there's enough familiarity there too. That's like okay. I, 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 again, the reason I studied Mendelssohn is because I was drawn in by the music. Um, so Mendelssohn is still very close to my heart. Um, but it was, you know, around the teenage rebel years when I started getting into the Beatles um, and through the Beatles. And again, I think it's a nice step from classical because of all the sounds that they were experimenting with and inviting London Symphony and BBC Orchestra musicians to to play on their tracks, that, that that makes it kind of an easier small step to, to, to go there. And then from there, kind of opening up into the world of, 
you know, the 60s and then seeing through time how rock and pop and, and all these different, you know, genres like funk and stuff like that develop. And so actually, because there are no um, classical radio stations in broadcast range of the small town where I live, which is Lompoc, California, um, when I'm in the car and actually listen to a radio radio, um, I tend to listen to pop music. So mm. I know what's going on right now. Um, part of it was in my preparation for my Jeopardy uh, episode. I wanted to um, make sure that every time I'm like, hmm, this is a piece of music that seems to be happening a lot. Who's the singer on this? So that when the Jeopardy question came up, I'd be able to answer. Um, but I actually enjoy it. And uh, one time on Facebook, I didn't get to it on my blog, but I was really struck by a particular song that was using um, an effect for it, it tied really well to the words of the lyrics of the music. Um, and I wrote about that. I'm like, you know, don't discount pop music and you actually be very sophisticated in the way they're doing this on multiple levels. So, yeah. So that's what I'm listening to is yeah. I'm either classical at home. Uh, pop in the car, and if I'm hanging out with my husband, we're listening to the Beatles. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, maybe finally, um, and and we had Jeopardy at the beginning, Jeopardy yeah. at the end, so that there's a nice symmetry yeah. in there. But uh, I want you 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 study um, reception. Yes. Yeah. I wonder apply that to yourself. What to, whether it be classical or the Beatles or whatever. What's 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 going on? What's the music doing for you? Um. So it's very. I have never really thought about like what is, what is the reception? My reception of because I mean, I've made so many assumptions when I make you know when I write program notes. I'm kind of envisioning an audience that's kind of like who I was and kind of like who my parents are, where they're knowledgeable but not very not you know. But they haven't read the uh, scholarly literature that I have. Um, but I'm definitely not sitting there listening for an analysis. I say. Sometimes for the classical, like, like the um, actual late 18th century things I am, like I'll listen to a Haydn symphony and think, okay, yeah, we're through the development section. We're heading, oh, that's an interesting thing he did, getting us back to the, you know, hiding the recapitulation. Like sometimes I am thinking on that level. But a lot of times it's a lot of memories because I've had so many experiences and I, I feel that this is something that is only going to grow as I as I accumulate years I'm going to accumulate memories with these pieces um, things I played in youth orchestra um, things that are, I have a vivid memory of the first time I heard them on the radio as a child or um, just things that sometimes it'll be just like you know two seconds of this particular piece that just really hits me in the in the in the solar plexus and it's like that made me love this piece and I will listen to how the whole rest of it around it, just waiting for that one thing to come back. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I listen to it. And, you know, some of them are familiar, but I also really also like novelty. So, again, part of why I listen to a, a radio station still as opposed to a curated playlist that, you know, is from my own albums is I want to be introduced to new sounds and to things that are kind of similar enough to what I like, but also not a repeat of everything I've had before. Hmm. Well, we'll, uh, we'll end it there. Uh, Linda Shaver-Gleason has been with me uh, for the hour. 
And uh, she writes uh, program notes. Uh, she writes uh, blog posts. <laughs> and uh, the blog is not another music history cliche.blogspot.com. Uh, the website is shavergleason.com without a hyphen. <laughs> um, but you do reference the, the hyphen in your Twitter. It's yes. at Linda hyphen. Yeah. And, uh, and that's hyphen spelled out, not just Linda spelled, and then the thing. It's that's right. Spelled L-I-N-D-A-H-Y-T-H-E. out. That's right. Yeah. I think it makes it even better. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Facebook under program notes, you'll yes. find uh, Linda Shaver Gleason. Uh, she was on the USU campus in Logan uh, recently to give a, a presentation um, titled The Morality of Musical Men from Victorian Propriety to the Era of Hashtag Me Too, part of uh, USU's Year of the Arts. And uh, we uh, thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me.